Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Nikki Segnit is an expert on flavours, having written two best-selling books about the subject. I caught up with her before she jumped on a plane to Andalusia to talk about her eureka moment tasting a bottle of claret from Waitrose, unexpectedly delicious food pairings, Mike Lee and liver in lager, how we inspire kids to eat better, her mistrust of recipe books, and why she's on a mission to give home cooks the courage to strike out on their own. Hello, Nikki, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tim. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's a wonderful, uh, enormous pleasure to have you on the podcast. Where are you right now? Because you're a bit of a traveller, aren't you? Uh, well, I <laughs> I used to be. I've got small children, but I uh, I am in London, in the Angel of Islington. But about to go to Cadiz and Seville, I think? Yeah, we are. We are uh, about to go off to Seville, Cadiz, Jerez, and uh, hopefully eat lots of wonderful seafood. Yeah, they certainly will. Um, lots of stuff I want to talk to you about, including seafood at the beginning. Just tell us a bit about your upbringing, because you were born brought up in Hampshire. Was was food a big bit of your life growing up? It was, but in I, I'm now reflecting on it in quite a sort of, I don't know, in a very ordinary way, because my parents... No, they weren't part of the kind of Elizabeth David kind of classes. So they weren't very, I don't know, they weren't very um, trendy with their foods, but they cared about what they ate. My mother cooked everything uh, from scratch. My father was like really into deep sea fishing, was, was and is his hobby. So we often had lots of really good quality fresh fish. They, ca- You know, we ate very kind of ordinary food, but we cared about you know, if we were having fish and chips, it had to be from the best place that did fish and chips. If it was Cornish pasties, it was, they knew a place where the Cornish pasties were the best. So there was a kind of, there was a a, a, a yearning for quality of some sort. And I love the idea that your dad, I think your dad's 80 now, is he? but he's still, he's still into deep sea fishing. Does he kind of go out there? And- he is. He's still got a, you know, he's still got a fishing boat. And when he can get some people to go along with him, he's still out there chasing cod. I love that idea. <laughs> I mean, by your own admission, you weren't that interested in learning to cook until you really moved to London later life. I mean, who is, I suppose, as a teenager? But it sounds like music, clothes were a bit more appealing. And you weren't, I'm surprised to hear, very good at science because your book is quite scientific, bits of it. Yeah, no, I really had a very poor... I mean, I, I mean maybe I could have had a grasp on it. I just wasn't interested at all. And um, I could blame my teacher, but given that I was not interested in a lot of academic subjects, it possibly wasn't their fault. I was just into reading uh, fiction when I was a kid um, and horses and then into clothes and music. And so I don't know, I was just really well fed by my parents. And then when I moved to London, then I did the teenage thing and ate badly. Um, and then I got fed up with eating badly and I really missed kind of eating, you know, the good food that my mum cooked. So I actually got the same book that she had, which was a Marks and Spencer's all colour cookery book, which was very kind of, I mean, it's really, really 70s, but I, I still have it and I still use it a lot. It's, it's a really good basic book. I mean, were you always good at English? I mean, you said you like reading. Yeah. I mean, I don't know good at English. I, I 
yes, my poems would be entered into the kind of competitions and stuff. I mean, they're probably hilarious to read. But yeah, I was always really into um, reading and writing, yeah. And then you got a job in a library, didn't you, at Southampton University? Exactly. It just really, really followed. So when I left, I left school at 18 and I got a job in Southampton University Library, which I would maintain still is the best job ever. It was really, really wonderful. Um, I ate cottage cheese and chips with a shot of Bell's for lunch every day. Bell's whiskey. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing about working in the library is we work with lots of blue stocking women who kind of we, we would drink kind of a tot of spirits at lunch. So I joined in with that. Uh, it, but and I look back, you know, you look back on some of these things from your youth and think, God, that was weird. Um, and then I really, I really, really wanted to move to London, and that meant kind of just making a compromise with my life and leaving librarianship, unfortunately. And you got a job in the death tax office, as you call it, right? <laughs> yeah, I did a test for the civil service. And unfortunately, I was good at, turned out I was good at numbers, or maybe they just uh, stuck me in the death tax office. You know, it's inheritance tax now. But uh, I mean, it's just, you could not imagine a gloomier place to work. It was like mm. Terry Gilliam's Brazil, <laughs> and it was in Shepherd's Bush. With lots and, of heartbroken people phoning up. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's not funny at all. But yeah. Oh, no. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the clients were quite cheerful in comparison to the tax inspectors that were there is uh yeah i mean you really it would be quite hard to make up it was it was <laughs> gloomsville I, I, you know was it chance that you went into advertising next and you ended up working with food and drink clients you know, like coca-cola unilever diageo did you kind of choose that once you'd gone into advertising uh over a long period of time i shaped that so when i started in advertising i was a secretary and then i was working in the art department and then i asked to be moved over to strategy because i just found it really interesting what people like trying to find out what makes somebody buy something, what interests people in particular brands. I wanted to do that. So I moved into that. And then after I've been doing that for quite a long time, uh, I said to my boss that I just, could I just work on food and drink clients? Because I was, had by that time got really into cooking. Mm. Um, and I wanted to kind of fuse my work life with my interest. And so then I was working with, uh, you know, people like Coke and, mm. Uh, you know, Hellman's mayonnaise and stuff and where you are, you are doing product development, you're getting right into the, you know, the very heart of like a brand and what it makes as well as kind of how you present it. So I was doing sort of working on, I think I worked on Coke with vanilla and all sorts ah. of things like that. So okay. you're, you, it was starting, I was starting to sit in sensory tests and things like that, yeah. which um, obviously when I came to write the Flavor Thesaurus became mm. uh, something quite useful and then you had a bit of a eureka moment with a bottle of wine didn't you and it wasn't anything terribly grand i think it wasn't wasn't it a bottle of waitrose claret or something like that it was uh now i wish i could remember is it would it does this samurai to you is it uh seigneur aguil yeah uh, there would be the second wine of chateau de guil is that right yeah, yeah could be could well so, be, yeah. right. i mean yeah. it was it was i mean it's a i think cote de castillon and like not a particularly, you know, definitely enough for dough. Mm. And, um, but I had my husband and I, you know, we drink quite a lot of, we were drinking a lot of plonk. We were drinking a lot of nice enough Chilean reds, but quite characterless, quite sweet. And I think I bought, I just really don't remember why I bought this particular bottle of wine, but we were, we had some people over. I tasted it 
and it really did just stop me in my tracks because it was so different to what mm. we were drinking. And it mm. was so, I, I suppose the word is it was just so, it had finesse mm. and it was noticeable. And I, it, it just really arrested me, it really grabbed me. And I wanted, I thought, okay, now I need to find out more about what it is about, you know, this wine that is so different and is so delicious. And so I signed up for a course with the Wine and Spirits Education Trust and did their short course, uh, which you just kind of learn the very basics of tasting, but you're mm. sitting in a room with people who are mainly quite interested, quite engaged, mm. because a lot of them are starting out in their um you know, they're working for the, one of the big wine stores or whatever. Um, and that was great. I loved it. The teachers were absolutely brilliant. And so I went on to do the 13 week longer course where you're really getting into kind of tasting, you know, different Chardonnay yeah. side by side. Yeah. And, you know, I find that mind blowing. I loved it so much. So it was wine really in a sense that took you into, into flavor, did it? It really did because firstly, it taught me the difference between taste and flavor, but also I think just, that be- the beauty of it, the beauty of, oh, here are six wines that are made from the same grape, but they're all really different. And they're different in a way that you, even a, even a, a an amateur, very new amateur can see. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's poetic, man. Mm. I loved it. <laughs> but just define for us quickly the, the difference between taste and flavor that you learned on the course. So, um, and I, th- I think probably also when I read, when I started to read textbooks about flavor science, uh, who perhaps explained it in a, in, a, in a such brilliant way that, you know, the taste is sweet, sour, bitter, umami, salt that you kind of distinguish with the taste buds in your mouth and other places around your body. So I think bitter taste buds go all the way down into your stomach, don't they? Mm. And then, um, so that gives you, as I say in the introduction to my book, like a, a back of the envelope sketch of what something is like. Mm-hmm. And then flavor is mainly um, experienced through the nose, through the olfactory bulb. Mm-hmm. And so it's really smell and you can taste it. You can tell the difference. You're most aware of that difference when you have a cold, where you can yeah. still taste whether your lemsip is kind of like sort of a mix of horribly <laughs> sweet and really horribly bitter, but you can't necessarily tell when it's really bad, whether it's a lemon one or a blackcurrant one. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, about bitterness going right down into the stomach. Presumably that's a kind of last line of defence because a lot of things that are, are bitter are poisonous, whereas sweet things don't tend to be so. That's why we taste sweetness towards the front of our mouths usually, don't we? I think we're all slightly different, but right. do you find that? Um uh, I do you know. I don't know if I've ever really. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? I don't know if I've ever really kind of thought about it. I, I do remember learning the tongue map at school, mm. and I think having read since that that's kind of discredited a bit because it, mm. it's a bit more of a jumble than that. But mm. um, I don't know. I think it's a really it's a good excuse to um, get a lot of sweet stuff in, and maybe maybe <laughs> I've got a thing about affogato at the moment. You know, the <laughs> ice cream with coffee and brandy. I think yeah. maybe that would be a really nice thing to distinguish sweet and bitter and stuff. I think yeah. that'd be very, very, very interesting. I just wonder how important things are, like where people come from and what they're accustomed to in terms of the way they, they perceive or dislike certain flavours. I mean, do you find that when you're talking to people, you suddenly think, oh, you know, I hadn't thought, I, I hadn't thought of it in that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's much more important than any of the other kind of factors, really. So, you know, you can, I think, you know, you can see websites and books that try and take a much more hard line about the kind of science and the, you know, shared molecules and things and what that means for their compatibility. But really, it's, 
much more, you know, what we like to eat together and what seems to kind of be harmonious is much more to do with where we're from and what we've grown up eating and kind of our, our I mean, it's kind of, it's more, as I say, it's much more poetic. It's much more personal um, than just a kind of molecular story. And one of the, uh, one of the first people I spoke to when I started out working on the flavor thesaurus was a guy who'd been a um, flavor scientist all his life. And he told me, he said, here's the story you need to hear. When I was a kid, he said, uh, growing up in post-war, uh, my mother gave me orange juice and cod liver oil every day. He said, and I'm, you know, I'm now in my sixties and there are days that I crave that. With and, together, I mean, was she giving them to Yeah, <laughs> yeah, mixed together. And, you know, you know how horrible that cod liver oil stuff is. Uh, and yet, he, you know, he's talking about craving it. And I think that's it. It's that familiarity yeah. and just, and also the context, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's your mom, it's, mm. it, you know, it's kind of given to you as a basis, like this is good for you, or it's just mm. going to kind of, you know, mm. make you healthy in some way. Mm. Uh, that's just such a beautiful story, isn't it? Because yeah. um, anyone knows that orange juice and color is not, it's not nice. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a great match. It's, it's funny. I have a slight aversion to salted porridge, is that what we call it? And it's because I remember my grandmother when I was a kid, like forcing this stuff down me and it wouldn't yeah. be, I couldn't stand it. Um, so I think it kind of works both ways in a way, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, aversion therapy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, I mean, you could say a lot of aversions are more to do with texture than they are taste when you think mm. about the things that you don't like a lot of mm. things that people don't like like celery and rhubarb and i could see that porridge is quite frightening in mm. textual terms to some people <laughs> i don't like oysters particularly i think it's partly the texture you know i kind of find them a bit kind of slippery it know. must be entirely the texture yeah. and yeah. Well, the also i mean with with oysters yeah. maybe it's the idea um mm. yeah also, I had a bad one once, and that kind of puts you off a bit, doesn't it? Uh, well, that really—I mean, that definitely. Because mm. I mean, in I think there's this when you're sick as a mm. result of eating something that's bad uh, with, with food poisoning, mm. then as a rule, the brain remembers what that was, and it it puts you off eating it for a long time. So, as you, you know, I mean, a lot of people feel like that about tequila because they drank too much of it and were sick when they were teenagers. So um, it's often quite a difficult drink to offer at a party, isn't it? Um, yeah. But uh, there's a great story about a guy who was an Irishman who was on, maybe this is a bit unfair, but who was on a boat and he was enjoying some whiskeys on the boat and then it got very rough. Uh, and he realized that if he was sick, he was it was going to put him off drinking whiskey for the rest of his life. So he ran and got a coffee. And so the body blames the last thing that it that it consumes. So uh, so apparently he drank a coffee and he had a lifetime aversion of coffee, but he didn't have to give up but he the kept, bush mills. Maybe the whiskey. <laughs> Just tell us how the idea for the flavor thesaurus came about, because it's interesting. It was rejected by lots of people. I mean, as often brilliant books are, but you eventually got this deal. I mean, how did you come up with the idea? Were you just sitting there one day and thought, hey, why don't I try matching this with that? Or, or why has nobody done this book before? Um, it's, it's sort of, I mean, both, both of those things, but not that far. The, I was watching a TV program. I was watching MasterChef and somebody put two unlikely or li- unlikely to me ingredients together. And the, sh- the judges really rhapsodized about it. And I thought, well, I need to, uh, and I was, you know, I've been, I was a very into cooking by this stage. Mm-hmm. And so I was always interested in why not, you know, oh, strawberries and balsamic vinegar is really amazing. And I think, well, why, why doesn't anyone ever tell me why that's a really good combination? Why something 
odd works. And so I thought I'll go out. I mean, I don't know why I thought that I would find this book, but I went off looking for it in a bookshop and it didn't exist. And then I looked very extensively online to see if there was something like that and it didn't exist. Joked to my husband that I would write it mm. myself and then and then and then forgot about it. But I think about a week later, the title The Flavor of the Saurus dropped into my head. And that was uh, that brought with it the form of like a Roger's Thesaurus, yeah. an index of, you know, mm. basic combinations in the back, mm. and then a sort of more um, thoughtful mm. uh, elaboration on each of those pairings would go into the front of the book. And, and how did you decide how to organise the chapters and the pairings? Because there are, what, 99 flavours and some things didn't make it, you know, and I know people were pissed off that courgettes didn't make it <laughs> in the first book, but they made it in the follow-up. Yeah. Right? The courgetterati. The, the How did you decide on the 99? Well, I really just made a list and the original list was 160 hmm. uh, different ingredients that I thought were common enough. Or, I mean, I say, and, and, and I say that with truffles and caviar, both included, but um, common enough or interesting enough to include. And then quite a few of those things could be folded in together in terms of what sort of how they, what their flavor was and how they work with other things. Um, and then I just got to, and then it sort of came down to about a hundred. And then I ran out of time at 99. And the one that got next was Courgette <laughs> because actually describing, I mean, some things are really easy to describe. Like, yeah. um, I came across in the new book, I came across something about somebody was saying, Oh, miso is hard for Westerners to describe. And I thought, my God, have you ever tried to describe the flavor of a courgette? That's hard to describe. It's miso bland, is- <laughs> a courgette, isn't it? It's sort of green blandness. Can it be, yeah. can it be green and bland? Uh, I mean, I think I, the closest I feel like I've got to it, it tastes like rainwater. Mm, you know, like you've that. got that kind of, it is very watery. It's got that yeah. kind of earthiness and it's got a certain kind of, the earthiness of, mm, it was a slightly muddy earthy mm. rather than some of the mm. pretty, prettier earthier flavors. So that was it really. It was a bit kind of um, arbitrary in the way that a lot of artistic things yeah. have to be. But that's what makes it fun, I think. It, it, I mean, I, I think you said some people sit down and read the whole thing from cover to cover. I mean, I have to say I haven't done that, but I dip <laughs> in and out all the time. And I love that because you suddenly think, oh, I haven't read that bit for a bit, or let's see what Nikki thinks of that. It's, oh, it's a very you. personal book, I think. And it's, you know, it's a dictionary, as you've said. It's a recipe book, although some people describe it as an anti-recipe book. Um, we'll come on to that in a minute. It's also a memoir, it's a travelogue, lots of anecdotes, stuff about writers, painters, I love that, culinary history horticulture anthropology and a bit of science yeah mm-hmm. um, i mean which, which kind of books and authors influenced the shape of the book was there anybody who'd done something similar in a different discipline you thought oh, okay i could maybe nick a bit of that structure well yeah i suppose you're looking for things like what do what would i want to read particularly when you've never done something never written a book or anything actually had never written anything before so um what do i want to read well i'd like to read something like David Thompson's mm. biographical dictionary of film, which fantastic is just yeah. really yeah. fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. And so you pick it up because you think, oh, I've just watched a Nicole Kidman film. I wonder mm. what David Thompson says about mm. Nicole Kidman. And you open mm. it up and there's this great short essay about mm. her work and her talent. And then, and then of course, you're so hooked on David Thompson's brilliant writing. And he's, you know, there's lots of facts, but there's also lots of opinion and mm. there's lots of other cultural reference. It sends you off on a little journey i think and you know writing notes in your book about films Mm. that you want to see or want to seek out so that was very much in my mind um was there i think there was something else that 
I mean, there was a piece of food writing by MFK Fisher called yeah. I Was Really Very Hungry. It's quite, I've forgotten which book it's in because I'm, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but it's, that was very much like, that's my favorite piece of food writing yeah. ever. And it's just, it's a fantastic short story about a meal that she has on her own in, um, I think in Burgundy. Hmm. And you, you've also, you were very good at doing this. I mean, I don't even, it probably just comes to you naturally of having this very conversational style. It's like, you know, it's, it's like chatting to you in a way or listening to you, you know, you get a sense of, Hey, this person's on my side in a way, you know, this person shares my interests and is keen to share stuff with me about what has moved her in a way. I think that comes out of the, of knowing where I stand mm. in relation to the reader mm. who is, of course, me as much as anyone, because I was writing it because I was trying to find out the answers to this question. So you're always, you're talking to yourself in a way, but also, you know, I'm not a chef. I'm not, you know, I'm not trained in any way. Uh, I don't have any, you know, I don't have any position here other than being maybe somebody sitting in my kitchen talking to somebody else who's really interested in the subject. You know, so yeah. it's, so it is, I suppose it takes on that chattiness because that's the position I should occupy. Yeah. Were you surprised by how successful it was? I mean, as you said, you, you know, you weren't a chef, you weren't on TV. It was your first book um, and it just took off, didn't it? I mean, you've sold how many quarter of a million copies? Probably more by now, haven't you? And yeah, God knows I mean, how many translations there are, but loads, I mean. Yes, lots of, I means translated into 15 languages, which is a lot for a food book. And um Yes, it's just come come out, coming out in Vietnamese. So, and it's really, you know, it's great because it's in lots of uh, translation, you know, it's in French and Italian and Spanish and, um, you know, and Japanese and Korean and lots of foodie cultures. Mm. So that's, I mean, that is really surprising more mm. than anything, I think, mm. just the fact that you take this, because it's always going to have a, you know, it's always going to be written by a girl of a certain age, woman of a certain age from Hampshire who's had this kind of food. You know, it's like anyone's flavor of the source would be different. Everyone who wrote that book would do it differently. Um, and, but I, I mean, I think I thought there would be a small amount of people who were like keen cooks like me who would be interested. I wasn't, I was a bit amazed by the fact that it was as popular as it was. Mm. I think everyone was, as you say, it was very, it, most people didn't really see the commercial possibility well, of as it. You, said, you know, it's rejected a number of times. I mean, it's rejected a lot, yeah. but I think it's very difficult when, um, when something is so different, mm. when something is really new, you know, it's very hard to be the kind of person, mm. the editor in a, a, you know, or, you know, any art discipline to, mm. To say I can see this, and it's great to find people that did. It was Richard Atkinson who was at Bloomsbury at the time, just brilliant editor, uh, and very into that kind of thing, I guess. So you find, like any, any, you know, like in love, you hope to mm. find someone that feels like you do that yes. stuff. <laughs> but what was, I suppose, what is really weird about it is it's quite, and it is still quite a difficulty, is not mm. having, not being established, not being networked. Mm. So I mean, I think that's still kind of a bit of a issue for my work but on the bright side of it it kind of passes from hand to hand mm. so you yeah. know it turns up in some very famous chefs bookshelves and things like that and you think i you know they somehow that's gotten to their hands and that's mm. it just passes which is from lovely. person to yeah. person which is which is yeah. really good because it's kind of that sort of uh, word of mouth is the media money can't buy right 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, was, was the fact that, you know, it was the heyday of Ferran Adria at, at, at El Bouilly and, and Heston Blumenthal, the fat duck. Did that help in that they were kind of doing quite weird things with snail porridge and all those sorts of things? I mean, I can't even remember how many different flavours there were at El Bouilly. I mean, amazing. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, well, I mean, I think it was partly to, partly that what was going on at that time partly helped create the book because it was things like, it, you know, those things were making the tabloid press, like mm. Hessen's making exactly snail porridge. <laughs> There's, you know, oysters with passion fruit jelly, all those, those things that, yeah, I think that, that really stoked my fire at least. Mm. So I could imagine that they would. And I think that we're still living in a time when, you know, that kind of flavor frenzy is still very much, right. You know, the gin, flavors mm. and all that kind of thing everywhere you go there's a lot of excitement i think about trying new things mm, i think that's true one of the things many things i like about the book I and mean, all your books actually is that they're not prescriptive you know it's a guidebook in the best sense you know i think your aim was it feels like was to liberate people to say hey you don't have to follow a recipe slavishly you know give them the confidence to go out on their own was that was that consciously something you wanted to do I mean, really, absolutely. So that was very much what was in it for me. So when I started writing The Flavor of the Saurus, I could not not follow a recipe, mm. even though I had been cooking for decades and mm. really very widely and had a lot of, lot of experience with ingredients and things, but not any um, freedom. Mm. And so uh, when it got to the point that I had to kind of include like little running recipes they're very kind of they're more like sort of serving suggestions a mm. lot of them but I had to try you know I had to try things together I had to make things up or adapt recipes mm. and so at that point I started to let go and that freedom that kind of um uh look not that much can go wrong kind of mm. feeling in the book mm. it's, how bad can it be you know it's very mm. rarely you're going to end up throwing something away it just might not be particularly good mm. That is throughout, you know, very much in natural cooking as well. That, that idea of like just, um, learn to take your hands off the handlebars a bit and yeah. start. There are so many good reasons to do that, not just to take yourself to the next level of what kind of cook you are if you're a domestic cook, but also to, to use up the things that you have in your kitchen. Which well, and I think you, you said that your mother and grandmother, who were both very good cooks, um, home cooks, didn't follow recipes really. They were basically just cooking with what was fresh in many ways. Exactly. Well, they, and they also, they didn't really, you know, my grandmother didn't own a recipe book. I don't think she had some pamphlets from say mm. McDougall's flour mm. and that kind of thing. And my mum had <laughs> two. Digest or, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, just things that came free, you know, yeah. but they were like, you know, there was a couple of them. Mum mm. had two or three cookbooks and a scrapbook. Mm. Um, and now, of course, now we live in a place where you can't move for recipes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've certainly got way too many myself, really. Um, tell us about the second book, because it was more of a recipe book, which was lateral cooking. But again, you sought to sort of establish these patterns between things, don't you? I, I think I like the way you do that, that you're looking to order things in, in a way. What inspired the idea behind that book? It's a more practical book in a sense, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's it, it sort of, it looks a bit more conventional. I'm not sure if, if you read it, it feels quite so conventional, but it's, um, the idea was, so it started out as the flavor thesaurus cookbook. It, I don't know that, was, that wasn't what it's going to be called, but that was the idea. It's like, how do you take flavor and apply it to? So I was having to do that for the flavor thesaurus, which is if I, okay, do I understand at the heart of it what an ice cream is in order that I can make an ice cream of any flavor? So I suppose that's what that book is about. That book is about what is the basic 
underpinning of a recipe so that you can apply your own flavor to it. Mm. Uh, so that's where it started. But then it became a little bit more um, mathematical, I suppose, in that I started to see how, for example, if you take the whole kind of custard family, mm. how you could join up something from, you know, if you could start with uh, a, the, the a custard tart and what you, the custard you put in a custard tart to mm. bake it. And how that, you know, what do you have to do to change that to make it a uh, creme caramel? And what do you do to that then to turn it into a creme brulee? And how you could kind of plot things on a continuum, really. And that if you understood that, if you understood what happened to something if you changed using whole eggs and milk to make a creme caramel mm. and then changed it to cream and just yolks, mm. then you, you not only did you learn how to make two things, but you understood what the difference was between how those ingredients affect that dish. And what, and, and so yeah. they, they, they kind of taught you a little bit about cooking and ingredients, but also they're like for each one of those basics, there was kind of starter pack of flavors. So it's very much, I mean, I think it's the way that kids should learn to cook because it's mm. just kind of teaching you that all batters are essentially the same. And, you know, if you can learn a ratio of, uh, you know, one cup of flour and one cup of water or milk, then you're kind of like, you're there. <laughs> mm. And is that the approach you take with your own kids? Do you, do you teach them to cook like that? Uh, <laughs> can lead a horse to water, but <laughs> you can't make it drink. Um, I mean, I try. I, I think they're very young. They're like nine, just, just nine years old. So they, uh, one, my son is very interested in he's quite into baking um my daughter is quite like a lot of kids kind of quite interested and then gets bored mm. quite quickly mm. so uh, i'm more at the moment more interested in trying to make them understand um or give them an experience of what mm. real food tastes like yeah that's important isn't it i don't yeah. think i mean i'll do the cooking with them when they feel like it mm. but uh and also try and drum some of the basics into them of like mm. you know this is made up of exactly the batter thing like this yeah. is a pancake is going to be one cup of flour and one cup of milk and mm. an egg and mm. just you know if you can count up to one you can make this <laughs> um but with the rest of it i think at the moment we're much more like this is what real things taste like this is what yeah. An apple pie made of, you know, made at home tastes like, and this is what um, bolognese, you know, so yeah. that they're not kind of growing up in a, a processed food. Yeah, and world. things are in season in a way. Yeah. Well, yes, probably not as strictly as I should mm. be, to be honest. But mm. um, but you know, in in the autumn we go blackberry picking and stuff, mm. so they have That's some idea of that. I think, yeah, I'm not sure how brilliant I am at that, but yeah, maybe it's a thing to think about, Tim. I, mean, I the, can the, improve. Yeah, I'm sure you can. <laughs> I mean, there are, we know the sort of classic matches, particularly if you're a wine writer, there are certain things that people say, hey, this goes with that. But um, part of me thinks and wonders, are they always as good as people say? And I just wonder if you could give us three flavour combinations that really surprise you that people should try, not classics, but things that you, Nikki, found and you thought, hey, that's brilliant. Okay, well, I mean, one that I just love and I just so looked forward to writing about it in the first flavor thesaurus mm. is coffee and blackcurrant. Mm. And I remember when I was writing about it, it was I don't think I don't think on Google I got more than like four matches for coffee and blackcurrant at the time because it just wasn't something that you would necessarily hear about, but I had eaten it in a uh in a hotel restaurant somewhere near Chamonix in a in the summer going on like a hiking holiday and they made this dessert and I think it was a sort of I forgot what it's called because uh, it was something uh, Vacheran glass mm. 
layers of meringue and cream and a very, very rich, very strong coffee ice cream and a beautiful black currant um, sorbet where mm. the black currants weren't oversweetened. And just the coming together of those things, and it was such an exciting combination. Mm. You know, you've got a lot of sourness and bitterness going on with a lot of sweetness as well. And I just thought it was so incredible. And then the more, the uh, as time's gone by, I think um, some coffee um, merchant said, actually, you'll find blackcurrant coffee in this particular type of coffee. They're really, really strong flavor notes. And it turns out that also in Italy, in some of the kind of more um, northern regions of Italy, some of the red wines contain coffee and blackcurrant notes as well. Very noticeable. Isn't that beautiful that you just find this kind of in these lovely um, natural uh, vessels of those two flavors? So I just think, oh, there's, you know, there's some lovely clues within that so I, I think that would be something to play with that's really beautiful uh what else did i oh god I've, now they're all all the coffee ones are coming to me i don't know why they become <laughs> so unusual i went to a tasting of um cheese and chocolate at the chocolatier paul a young's place and we had we tried lots of different chocolates and cheeses but one was a washed rind quite smelly cheese with mm. milk chocolate that was amazing and so like epoisse and milk chocolate. I don't yeah. think it was epoisse, but uh, I can't remember. I think it's in the book, it, uh, in the first book, it says what the actual cheese was, but it was, yeah, I mean, it was challenging, but it was really, really good. I mean, you could, the, it was almost the, the, if you like the shape of the flavor, how they release, you know, the fat and how they release the, um, the flavor and the kind of strengths and stuff just seemed to mirror each other. So it was, you know, it was, a sort of beautiful parallel, but obviously two very different flavors. I think the chocolate and cheese thing is perhaps, um, you know, also quite explained by if you, if you like quite a rich dairy milk chocolate, you might mm. quite dig that. Mm. I'm trying to think of a weird from, from the new book. What have we been trying? Um, well, why does my brain go? Oh. Uh, T tell us about tell us about a no no. I mean, I, I always love that film, the Mike Lee film. You know, the yeah. life is sweet. Do you remember the, the regret real? I think it's Timothy Spall who plays the chef, doesn't he? Where he's doing like a liver in lager and a savalo with kiwi fruit. I can't remember what it is exactly. Is there anything where you've said there are not many things that are so bad they have to go in the bin? But are there any things we just thought, oh, this is a no no? Um, well, I'm really. I mean, oh, that film, by the way, is so funny. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, what do I think is a no, no, I'm very, very, I'm dead against chocolate and strawberry. I think that's a terrible combination. I think they really don't do anything for each other. And, um, ditto. I mean, there's ginger is used with quite a lot of fruits, uh, and that's kind of hangover from, um, a time when it was thought to match cold and hot kind of thing. So things that, um, uh, so like melon, would make your body very cold and, mm. you know, so you'd have ginger to warm it up. And I think mm. rhubarb and ginger too, I think comes from the pharmacy. Not good. Yeah. Not good. No, yeah. I mean, I don't, and, <clears throat> there's not a lot of kindness there. I mean, obviously <laughs> anything that you can probably, you can, if you add enough sugar to it, you can probably make it work. But I think it's a kind of, it's quite hard to think of, of that. But coming back to the, cultural background a lot of people have grown up with putting ginger in their rhubarb pies and crumbles and stuff and would you know would have a you know have take great issue with me saying that 
Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, you know, if you're looking at... The courgettistas again, they're going to be after you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the rhubarb isters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tell us about the second book, because you published it, I think, last year. Um, second flavours thesaurus called More Flavours. Um, this is plant-led, isn't it? Um, although, as you said, custard features in it, among other things. How does it differ from the first book? Is it just that it's plant-led? Um, yes, I mean, mainly, and in fact, even in that way, it doesn't differ that much from the book. So it's, it's plant led in as far as when I was, so what happened was I wasn't really going to ever write another one because writing the first one was just such a trial. Mm. Um, and I just didn't think I wanted to, but actually towards the end of writing natural cooking, which took eight years to write towards the end of that, I started to think of all these different ingredients that I wished that I covered. And that kind of started to, I guess, get the better of me thinking, oh, I wish I had written about mm. pomegranates or I wish I'd written about <laughs> courgettes, <laughs> taken that challenge and, and beans. And I love lentils. And, mm. you know, I like, I really like quite a lot of, um, you know, to eat quite a lot of vegetarian food. So I was mm. kind of starting to build this interest in a lot of things that, you know, just doing that research and getting stuck in and thinking that there would be a lot more material to draw on, which didn't turn out to be the truth. But um, but I was sitting in the pub one January with my husband, and I was just taking a big gulp of draft Guinness. And it just, and it literally just came into my head, like, I'm going to write another flavor thesaurus. And it, at that point, it wasn't good. I was just going to do all the things that I hadn't done. And then I wrote a list of all the things that I would cover in this one that I didn't cover before. And the only thing that wasn't the plant was duck. And you left duck out, didn't you? So I left duck out in the end, but I thought it was going to be all plants. And then actually when I got into the writing of that, it became too complicated because the but it I wanted the books to be very similar mm. in that they contain these kind of serving suggestions and running recipes and stuff. And like to take eggs and um you know and cheese and things out of at least my kind of w- worldview, my cooking, I just couldn't do it because it just meant, e- because the people I think that have read the first book, they're people who are interested in cooking mm-hmm. or they do it professionally or they're really interested in doing it uh, on an amateur basis and they are not necessarily vegans or even vegetarians. They're just people who are interested in flavor. So it just struck me, okay, if I add some of these things back in, I'll put eggs Yogurt, which I really wanted to write about. Mm. Uh, so yogurt's in this one and cheese and, um, honey. So these. So duck is volume three, just, is it? Du- <laughs> duck is in volume three with, uh, cassava. That's, I, I couldn't, I didn't miss cassava, plantain. There's a whole, there's a, you know, there's a little debris of things that I just ran out of time. There's, there's, there's more to come. Listen, I want to yeah. ask you a little bit about food and wine pairing because you, you love wine and you're very knowledgeable about wine too. Do, do you liberate people with your with your food books in a sense and with these flavour books? Do you think people get too hung up on food and wine matching? I've got to have a red wine with this and white wine with that. And um, could, would you like to liberate people in that sense too? Uh, I'd like somebody who knows more about it to liberate them. I mean, there's so many books on. And so many good books on mm. matching food and wine, aren't mm. there? I mean, yeah. I Victoria Moore book. This book is very good, isn't it? Yeah, right. And yeah. and I mean, I have several on my shelf that when I'm stuck, uh, which I get with certain ingredients are really hard to write about. Then you can turn to those people and just that gives you some clues and starts mm. some threads for me when I'm writing. So I don't really feel like I would put my hat in that ring. Mm. But I what I like about it or what I like about it is the some playfulness mm. 
the idea that you can sit down to a meal and someone can say, oh, you should try this with this yeah. and it will make it more interesting or make it taste better or make it taste mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's really good fun. Is there a book that's about sort of unlikely food and wine matches? Well, probably probably a little bit, but I think people tend to play by the rules. I mean, Victoria's book is very good, I think. I, yeah. I must have you around for dinner at some point because what we do is we just put four bottles on the table uh, or I serve them in glasses and we have one dish and three wines and we just say, you know, people just talk about the wines and see what's fun. I mean, I, I've never believed in saying this wine must go with this with this dish. You know, I think you can just play fun. And fun. I did add, I mm. did when the first book came out, um, Fiona Beckett took yeah. me out. Well, she's very Peter- knowledgeable. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And she took me to a Peter Gordon restaurant. What a great choice to go yeah. to, you know, I mean, he was so ahead of his time in terms of, uh, what he was doing with mm. flavor mm. anyway. And she, we tried some things she was a bit more like that, but she said, oh, let's try this and let's try that. And it was so fascinating to yeah. see the difference that a wine could make to a dish. Yeah. Um, I feel like I, probably know uh you know the classics mm. um and i really li- i like the idea of putting um different wines on the table and trying different things mm. when i'm certainly when i'm stuck on mm. describing certain foods i will get loads of stuff out of the fridge yeah. and just put it on the kitchen table and say right try just go mad in fact like have this what would you call it just like as a sort of you know, trying to find something out of some chaos. Yeah, it's like an acid party or something. <laughs> I'm not saying I love those one. too. How funny! Yeah, I mean, when I <laughs> when I'm really stuck, I'll have an acid party. <laughs> Listen, final question is just how do you get away from your day job? You know, writing, cooking, tasting. I mean, how, how do you relax? Got two young kids, obviously, uh, and that takes a bit, bit of your time. Anything else you like doing just to relax? <laughs> a bit, yeah. A bit. Um, well, I think yeah. I'm just trying to get back out into the world i think um i'm still really into music so that mm. is my great great love so chrissy hind big bit you're a big fan of chrissy Hind. <laughs> i love chrissy yeah. um i just think she's she's so inspirational i went to see her she's played at the electric ballroom um in the winter last year you know she's just i mean she's amazing um Do you but remember that I, great, into- line, great line i think she won an award it was a grammy or something she or i think it was a hall of fame award and she said i'd just like to thank all the people i had to sleep with to get this award which i thought was quite exactly <laughs> which of course she wouldn't have done because she's too cool for that no, exactly, but, um, but course, she likes yeah. to shock yeah. uh i think she's amazing um i mean i'm into all sorts of music in uh, fashion and yesterday we went to the Sir John Stone Museum, trying to like get back yeah. into all the kind of cultural things that feed into uh, the writing and that yeah. kind of, I don't know, the thing that makes your brain fizz a bit. I yeah. mean, that's, yeah, that's it. And kind of sitting in the sun has become something that I've decided I like in my old age. <laughs> I agree with that too. Well, you can do that this week when you're off to Seville and you said, and Caddy, so have fun. Nikki, thank you yes. so much for spending time talking to us about your amazing books. Um, I love both of them, all three of them actually. So it's great. Thanks for sharing your amazing knowledge and your enthusiasm with us. Good to thank see you. Thank you for having me on your lovely podcast. It's been a pleasure. See you. Bye. What an inspiring and fascinating story. And I can highly recommend all of Nikki's books. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the author, commentator, and entrepreneur, Robert Joseph. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles, and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week. <laughs>